0: Let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder the soul and the spirit and the joints from the marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Before we begin our study, let's make sure we're in fellowship have a few moments of silent prayer to use First John 1, 9 if necessary, so that we can recover the filling of the Holy Spirit, and He is the one who indwells us and fills us with doctrine, He is the one who teaches us, and He is the one who produces spiritual growth in our lives, so it is important that we are in right relationship with Him when we begin our study of the Word. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you that we have this time to refresh our souls with the truth of your word. That as we gather together today, we realize that we are coming from many different circumstances and experiences in life. Some of us are struggling with uh, different adversities. Some of us are in the midst of uh, busy, hectic schedules. Some of us are dealing with personal problems that seem insurmountable. Yet we know that it is in your word that we have solutions to every problem every difficulty we face in life. It is your word that the Holy Spirit uses to produce spiritual growth in our lives, and it is only by reaching spiritual maturity that we are enabled to truly understand life as it is, to see things in in the framework of reality, and to respond on the basis of truth. And only then that we will experience all of the blessings that you've given us and the full happiness and joy that the Lord has provided for us. So, Father, now as we continue our study in your word, we pray that we might be encouraged and refreshed by the things that we study. In Christ's name, amen. Open your Bibles with me to Judges chapter 6. Judges chapter 6, and I want to just review a minute what is taking place in this terrible period of time in the history of Israel. We have seen that it is a time of spiritual apostasy and reversionism in the nation. It is seen especially in the decline of the leaders and the impact of the pagan culture on them. It begins with the first judge who was Othniel. Nothing negative was said about Othniel or his wife, Aksa. And they are presented, as it were, as sort of the standard, the benchmark of the spiritual maturity that was present in Joshua's generation and the generation of the elders that came into the land and conquered the Canaanites. But they also began to fail, for it was that same generation that began the policy of compromise and assimilation of the value system and the thinking of the Canaanite culture that surrounded Jews and that had previously possessed the land. Uh, From Othniel, there was a period of uh, rebellion against God afterward and and spiritual apostasy, and the people were brought under a time of oppression from a foreign power, which is how God was disciplining the nation at that time. And he delivered them through through Ehud, who through a series of uh, deceptive uh, tactics was able to assassinate Eglon, the king of Moab, who was oppressing Israel at that time, And once again, the nation is delivered. But it doesn't last long. They continue to go into apostasy and idolatry. And once again, they go through a period of oppression. And they are delivered by Deborah and specifically uh, Barak, her general. Then we have another period of decline. And again, they are oppressed by the uh, coalition of Midianites and Amalekites for seven years. And then God raises... Oh, thank you. Take a minute to get that going. Then God raised up Gideon. And it is in the midst of this Gideon episode. The Gideon cycle covers three or four chapters. Chapters 6 through 9 all cover Gideon and the consequences of uh, Gideon's judgeship. Gideon is really the turning point, as it were, in this uh, in this book. From this point on, the judges are more apostate and are more pagan than they are spiritual. We see, even in Gideon, that he doesn't have a true understanding of, of doctrine. He is a believer, but he is biblically ignorant. He is operating uh, on pagan concepts more often than then not, and we'll see a little bit of that, a little more of that um, this morning. And this is followed by Jephthah, who is even more paganized than Gideon, and culminates with Samson, who, for though he is a believer, and though the Holy Spirit is empowering his judgeship, his life is no different at all from the surrounding pagans. In fact, it is in some ways even more degraded and more perverted than that of the pagans. And all of this tells us that it is very possible for a believer, a genuine believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, to get, give in to human viewpoint thinking and the temptation of the sin nature and the lust of the flesh and to go into spiritual rebellion, spiritual apostasy, and think, live, and operate no different from the pagan culture around us. One of the sad points is that, unfortunately, in too many churches in our country today the people are not being taught how to think critically about these things. So, they spend a lot of time learning the Bible almost in an academic sense. They end up learning a lot of things about what God can do for them, but it's almost as if it is compartmentalized, and it doesn't have an impact on how they think in every other area of life, whether it is more personal areas, such as marriage and family and personal relationships, or whether it is something... Uh, more academic, such as the study of law, the study of politics, the study of economics, the study of literature, history, but yet the Bible t- tells us that the word is sufficient for everything, and that there is a framework for understanding every arena of thought with from, that derives from the Scripture, and that's what we call divine viewpoint and that is in contrast to what I call human viewpoint or pagan thought. Pagan thought is not a pejorative term, it is a technical term for the kind of thinking that is not biblical. And to make something biblical doesn't mean that somehow you come along and you find verses in the Bible that seem to support what you're saying and then you tack those verses on. It's important to develop a, a from the text a biblical view of all the different areas in life, and that's one of the things that, that I hope we will be able to do as the years go by and time permits. It takes a tremendous amount of study. That's why I think that it doesn't happen in a lot of churches. Is because uh, the pastors just get so caught up in all kinds of other things, administrative functions. They get involved in, in trying to build a church. They get confused with the fact that Jesus said, I will build my church and their job is to feed the sheep, and they think that somehow it's the Sunday school teacher's responsibility to feed the sheep, and their job to build the church. And uh, that, is, that distracts them, and so they don't spend the time in the Word. I probably spend somewhere around 40 to 50 hours a week directly involved in reading, studying the Word, and I think that's about half what it ought to be. But, you know, you can only do so much, and God's only given us so much time. And we just have so much that's here, and so much that can be developed from the Scriptures. Gideon, like so many today, is not even sure of how God operates. He's confused. He has, he has absorbed so many ideas about God, quote, God, from the pagan culture and its worship of the Baalim, the Baals, which is the Canaanite fertility culture, and the Asherah, that in some ways he we're going to see he treats God in the same way that the uh, pagans treated Baal and interacted with Baal. You see the same thing today. We have our version of the fertility cult, which was a pro- prosperity cult of the ancient world, and we see that today with the health and wealth gospel. I watched a uh, briefly as I was channel surfing looking for news this morning. I saw a preacher at the close of his Uh, Sunday morning message this morning, about 5.30, saying that if you would send in or visit his website, you could learn all the principles you needed to be healthy, wealthy, and prosperous. And that is our version of the fertility cult of the ancient world. We are promising things and interpreting the Scripture in light of pagan categories, pagan vocabulary, and pagan concepts. And the result is you end up with a church that might have 5,000 people in it, but they think just like the people who are outside the church, outside of grace, who aren't saved and don't have a clue about doctrine. So Gideon, though, gives us hope because God uses him despite the fact that he is so confused about the truth and so ignorant about so many things, and despite the fact that, that even though Israel is crying out to the Lord for deliverance, there's no uh, real change in the way they're thinking. They just don't. They just want God to take away the suffering. They're not saying, Lord, we recognize that our problem is idolatry and we're going to take care of that. In fact, this is the point of the passage from verse 33 on. Last time, or verse 28 on, or 25 on. Last time we stopped where verse 24. Where Gideon had sought confirmation from the Lord, the angel of the Lord had uh, appeared to Gideon and commissioned him as the deliverer of the nation. In order to get confirmation, Gideon was going to bring out an offering. We're told in verse 19, he prepared a kid. Now, think about this. He says to the angel of the Lord, wait a while, I want want confirmation. He prepares a kid. Now, that takes a while to go out into the field or maybe into the sheep pen in the backyard, grab a a kid, uh, slaughter it skin it, prepare it for, or or, uh, if he's going to prepare it as a meal, and bring it out. Unleavened bread, he has to go get the uh, flour, he has to bake it, puts the meat in a basket and the broth in a pot, so he fixes a whole meal. This probably took two or three hours before he brings it out and puts it on the altar, and then it is consumed by this uh, fire from God that consumes everything on the rock, and that is his confirmation. Confirmation. So, once he has confirmation, then the Lord gives him a particular task to perform. And this is given in verses 25 and 26. Let's slip through this slide real quick. Verse 25, now on the same night, the Lord said to him, that is to Gideon. So, now we've gone from the daytime when the Lord first appeared to Gideon and evening has come. Well, who knows why that is happening. One of those days that everything, that's not what it looks like on the screen, but everything up on the overhead is, something has glitched and it's not showing. Oh well, you can read the center part of the verse or just get your Bibles out. must be that I'm supposed to teach something right today. On the same night, the Lord said to him... So, nighttime has come. We've seen a lot of time go by. And uh, God is going to commission him. He says, take your father's bull and a uh, second bull, seven years old. This is a bad translation. We'll come back and look at the correct translation in a minute. Second bull, seven years old. Pull down the altar of Baal, which belongs to your father, and uh, cut down the Asherah that is beside it. Verse 26, and build an altar to the Lord your God on the top of this stronghold stronghold, in an orderly manner and take a second bull and offer a burnt offering with the wood of the Asherah which you shall cut down. What we learn from this is that Gideon's father has a Baal temple in his backyard so that Gideon's family is deeply immersed in Baal worship. In fact, his father is the uh, lead promoter of the Baal religion and Canaanite religion in their region. So, God is basically saying to Gideon, okay, we handled the first part. I gave you a commission. We're learning a few things about doctrinal orientation, but it's not just academic truth. You don't just learn that I have a plan for your life. That plan involves application and that before you can function as a servant of me, you must first start applying some truth. You see, God is demonstrating a basic principle here that doctrinal orientation is not just learning academic truth. It is application for spiritual growth. And that if you are going to be involved in Christian service, then it begins by first your own spiritual growth. Christian service is a result of spiritual growth. It is not a cause of spiritual growth. So that the believer needs to first get involved in spiritual service and spiritual growth, I mean, get involved in spiritual growth, learning and applying doctrine before they're put especially in any kind of position of leadership, whether that involves teaching in Sunday school or it involves any other level of leadership in the local church that Christian service should flow as a result of spiritual growth. And that means that before you start getting involved in doing something in a local church, you need to spend some time learning basic doctrine and grow, and applying it in our own lives. See, God is instructing Gideon that his first task is to start dealing with the internal problem, the root problem in Israel. The root problem is not that they have an inadequate military that is unable to protect them from the onslaughts of their foreign enemies. The basic problem in Israel is not that they have perhaps uh, poor agricultural techniques or uh, technology so that they can't produce enough crops to uh, support themselves and the foreign invader at the same time. The problem is that they have succumbed to idolatry. They have rejected God, they have rejected the Mosaic Law, and they have followed after the false religion of the Canaanites. And until they deal with the core problem, treating the symptom isn't going to solve anything. And that principle holds true both for us as a nation and for us as individuals. So often somebody comes in for counseling. They want to talk to the pastor and they've had a lot of problems in their life and all of a sudden everything seems to be falling apart. Those are the symptoms. The problem is that doctrine is not a priority in their life and they haven't been consistently applying doctrine in their life. So when everything falls apart, suddenly they start wanting to show up at Bible class and learn just a few things so that they can get their life stable again. And that's not how it works. What you have to do is start dealing with those uh, basic issues of making God the focal point where there is no basic, no fundamental compromise in life in relationship to doctrinal priority. So, Gideon has to start making application in the realm of doctrinal orientation. And this flows from the uh, first two commandments in the Mosaic Law. In Exodus 20, verse 2, we read, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. That is the first commandment of the Ten Commandments. Verse 4, you shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. Now, I just want to make a comment there because of a question that was raised regarding um, the uh, lifting up of the brazen or the bronze serpent in the wilderness when Israel was going through the wilderness and they came to the place where they were attacked by the fiery serpents because of discipline from God. And God said to Moses to make an image of the serpent and put it up on the post. This is not a prohibition of art. This is not a prohibition of making uh, representations of created objects because there certainly were representations of different things in the creation. For example, they were to make uh, images of the cherubim to place over the Ark of the Covenant. And there were other decorations of animals and other cre- creation objects in the tab- tabernacle and in the temple. So it's not a... Prohibition against art or uh, sculpting or anything of that nature. It is a prohibition of making something for the purpose of worshiping it. That is the concept here. So they're not to make anything as a worship object, to, as a representation of God for the purpose of worship. Uh, Exodus 20, verse 5, You shall not worship them or serve them, For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children on the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me. So this is talking about the fact that this can lead to a generational problem to the fourth generation because of the rebelliousness of previous generations. Verse 6. By showing loving kindness to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Now, this is the fourth commandment. You shall not take the name of the Lord your vain is usually applied in a rather superficial concept in our culture, mostly because the the uh, original languages aren't consulted. Taking the name of the Lord your God in vain is usually related to uh, using the name of Jesus or God in some sort of profane expletive. That m- might be part of this, but it certainly doesn't catch the main idea of this prohibition. The word translated in vain in the Hebrew is the word... Allah shawah and it means deceit false wicked empty light or vain it has the idea of attaching wrongly or falsely the name of God to a cause or a person's life when that person's cause or life is not biblically validated for example if you Decide that God wants you to do something just because that has somehow stirred your emotions and you've gotten excited about something. Say, so, well, God wants me to do X, Y, or Z, and God has not appeared or spoken verbally to you. And since He doesn't do that in this generation, He has not. Believe me. Then uh, what you have done is violate this. You've taken the Lord's name in vain. You said this is God's will for my life, and and you have no way of saying that, uh, no basis for saying that. You've attached. God's name falsely to that, and you've taken the name of the Lord in vain. There are false religions and cults who use the name of Yahweh or Jehovah in attachment to them, and that is taking the Lord's name in vain. It is attaching it in a false way to a cause or purpose, and it is deceitful because God has not authorized that. It is also can be applied to the life of a person who has... who claims that they are a believer and they're actually just more concerned about learning a lot of doctrine and not really applying it. And so they are, in, in, in a common everyday language, they are talking the talk without walking the walk. They are talking a lot about the Bible and about God and that religious verbiage peppers their language and they present a, a overt facade of Christianity but their life doesn't reflect it at all. And people around them see through that external veneer of uh, Christian verbiage and recognize that there's something uh, missing that's taking the Lord's name in vain. It is applying the Lord's name in an inappropriate way to a cause or a person's life. This means that you can't move or get involved in Christian service Uh, unless, first of all, there are the beginnings of spiritual growth and application of doctrine in the life. It means that you can't hide behind principles like it's the message, not the man, and that's a valid principle. But sometimes people use that to justify a life of antinomianism so that they can go on some sort of power trip or head trip and they can be in a position of teaching and academic uh, uh, authority without having the word transform their own life personally. This is one reason why we have policies in this church insisting that if someone is going to teach Sunday school or be involved in Christian leadership that they need to be in Bible class consistently and that we have a time of observing them and getting to know them before we ever put them in such a position. The basic principle underlying this command of God in verse 25 is that before the believer can start functioning in the role of Christian service, there needs to be a time of learning and application in the believer's life. Second principle we see here is that God does not tolerate compromise. He is going to address the core problem in Israel before he starts dealing with the symptom. The symptom is that they're being overrun by the foreign oppressors. The core problem is idolatry, and God is not going to solve the external problem or the symptom of the uh, oppressor before he starts addressing, but he will first start addressing the problem of idolatry in the nation. So he starts with Gideon at his own home, and this is also a stepping stone for Gideon's spiritual growth. See, God doesn't is not going to come to chapter 7 and say, Gideon, Okay, we're going to send you against 200,000 Midianites with 300 men uh, right out of the chute. That's a little overwhelming sometimes for an immature baby believer. So, God's going to give him a smaller task. And in that smaller task, God is going to demonstrate his sufficiency and his ability to solve the problem and protect Gideon. And then once Gideon has learned that and had that level of experience with God, then Gideon can move to the next and higher level of of Trusting God. So God commands him to take his father's bull and a second bull seven years old. Now, the interesting thing here is that this uh, second bull is a, uh, in the Hebrew, it's what's called a homophone or, or a homonym. It's a word that is similar to, looks like another word. It looks, it is the word sheni in Hebrew, which is the standard word for second. But why, the question should occur to us, why is he to take a, this, this second bull? There's also an uh, indication that this is a um, uh, this seven-year-old bull, that, that it's uh, a, a son of the older bull. Why this second bull? What's, what's going on here? Because it's the second bull that is sacrificed. What's the significance of it being second? Well, from cognate studies, those are related languages, it appears that there was another word spelled the same way in, uh, in Aramaic. And uh, that tells us, by looking at other languages like Aramaic and Phoenician and Ugaritic and Akkadian, we can learn some things about Hebrew, the Hebrew language because the only surviving uh, documents that we have on ancient Hebrew is the Hebrew text. And sometimes there are words that are used only one time or two times or three times that are uh, that have certain meanings, and we're not aware of them because we don't, just don't have enough documents from the ancient world to, to come to a firm conclusion. So we look at how these cognate languages use a similar word. Well, there is a homonym in Aramaic spelled the same way that refers to that which is um, superior, that which is of high rank, that which is of, of uh, high quality. And so that would seem to fit the context better because it's not just the second bull that's sacrificed. What significance is second? But what is sacrificed is a bull of high quality, of sacrificial quality, just like the lamb that is without spot or blemish. This is a a prize bull. This is not a uh, just a any old bull that he pulls out of the herd. So he is to take his father's bull and a bull of high quality, That is, seven years of age. Now, why is it supposed to be seven years of age? What does that have to do with it? Well, look back at verse 1 of chapter 6. Then the sons of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hands of Midian for seven years. So, this bull is as old as the time of the oppression. So, this bull is identified in his life with the period of discipline in Israel's life. And so, therefore, it is fit to be a substitute, a sacrifice for the people. In the same way, the Lord Jesus Christ was a true man. He was fully human. He was... Uh, undiminished deity united with true humanity in the hypostatic union so that he could go to the cross as our substitute. And that's the function of a sacrifice is to serve as a substitute. So he is to take a bull of sacrificial quality that in its lifetime is identified with the period of rebellion and oppression in Israel and that will be the bull that is sacrificed. It is not the first bull, it is this... Uh, second bull that is the sacrificial bull so Gideon then takes the, these two bulls harnesses them together and goes de- out to pull down the uh, stronghold the, uh, of, of uh, Baal he is to pull down the altar of Baal and cut down the Asherah and build an altar to the Lord your God on top of this stronghold. And the Hebrew word for stronghold looks like this. Ma-oz. M-A-O-Z. And this refers to a, a Canaanite temple sanctuary that is fortified with both walls and towers. Now, that doesn't mean it's a large... Uh, area, probably not half the size, from what we know of archaeological remains, it's probably not but half the size of of this meeting house. But it was built up, there were clearly walls that were 8 or 10 feet tall, and there were towers on the corner, and so there was more to this than just coming up with a a couple of bulls and pulling a few things apart. It involved other men as well, we're told in in verse 27, Gideon took 10 men from among his servants. We noted last time the fact that he had at least ten servants, probably had many more, indicates that he is from aristocracy and from a wealthy family, and he is not the uh, uh, poor, downtrodden man that he made himself out to be in order to avoid responsibility. So Gideon took, takes these ten men, and he does this in the dead of night. He, we're, we're, we're excited about the fact that he has instant obedience to the command of God, But then we discovered that he does it instantly because he doesn't want to wait until morning when all the neighbors and everybody around him will see him taking on the task of challenging Baal. See, see, he knows that when he takes a stand for the truth that there's going to be opposition. And so he is fearful of that opposition. Now, he takes the ten men, he probably took five of them and placed them out as, as sentries to make sure that nobody would come up and interrupt their, their job. And then he took the other five and the two bulls and began to dismantle this altar. It took him most of the night, but he tore it all down. And then uh, on top of the stronghold, he built an altar to Yahweh. So what we see here is that human uh, viewpoint must always be challenged. By the believer. We can even in our, and this pictures the kind of challenge that should take place in our own thinking and in our own soul. This is in Gideon's own household. He has to challenge his own assumptions. He's been brought up in a household where the Canaanite religion is promoted. This was taught him. We don't know how he became a believer in Yahweh and the Old Testament concept, we don't know when it happened. Obviously, he didn't get much more than that, but he is at least a believer. But he has been inculcated in the Canaanite pagan religion. And what this is showing is that before he can go forward in any kind of uh, position of responsibility in the plan of God, he has to challenge the human viewpoint in his own surroundings. And that's what we need to do as believers. As we learn the Word of God, we realize that there is a conflict between what the Scriptures teach and what is going on around us. And application often is uh, difficult, and we have to take a stand in such a way that it makes us vulnerable to assault from those around us, maybe from family members, maybe from friends, for ridic- maybe we are ridiculed, we might lose a job. I've run into people, not in this country, but in other countries who have lost their jobs, lost nearly everything they had because they were believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. But we are involved in a battle in a battle for what goes on in the mind. Paul refers to this in 2 Corinthians 10, verse 5. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. What he means by speculations and lofty thing are lofty thoughts, high thoughts, abstract thoughts, the abstract thinking that was present in the pagan or human viewpoint systems of Greek philosophy and mystery religions that dominated the culture of that time. And it is our job as believers... To engage the enemy. The enemy is a, is thoughts. It's not people. It is the thinking of human viewpoint and it starts with rooting, identifying and rooting out the human viewpoint thinking that we have absorbed in our own souls. See, we're born to, all of us at one degree or another are born into environments that have been uh, loaded with human viewpoint thinking. Even if you were raised in a Christian home, there's still a certain amount of human viewpoint thinking in that home, uh, and you, you imbibe that as you were growing up. You learned it from the value system of your peers as you were going to school. You learned it from the teachers that you had in the classroom in high school and college. You learned it from reading the newspaper, watching TV and movies. All of these ideas in our culture are present, and we pick them up. And it is our job to think. That's why I keep insisting that the Christian life, the spiritual life, is a life of thinking. And it's not just a life of doing, but our, our actions should result from the way we think. If we just change our actions on the outside without changing the way we think on the inside, then we reduce Christianity to nothing more than another ethical system, and we reduce it to something that is merely superficial and not something that changes us from the core thinking which the Bible calls the heart, the cardia. So this is an illustration of how this transpires. Gideon has to challenge the human viewpoint thinking in his own home and challenge the paganism that's there before he can go forward in the plan of God. It reminds me also of Romans 12:2, where we are told not to be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our mind, the renewing of our thinking. So that you can demonstrate what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. So we are involved in a task, and that task includes a battle for the mind. And that's what spiritual warfare is all about throughout the Scriptures. There is that uh, metaphor of spiritual warfare. And it is not the idea of going out and engaging spiritual forces in battle. That is not the thrust, even though that is how it is being misrepresented in many places and in many theologies today. Spiritual warfare involves the battle for the mind. Spiritual warfare doesn't take place by going out and rebuking Satan, casting out demons, or any of that kind of thing. It involves a battle between your ears for what is going to dominate your thinking, divine viewpoint or human viewpoint and Gideon though he is cautious though he is fearful though he is somewhat hesitant and though he wants to avoid any real overt conflict with his neighbors and the others who live in the village at least he is willing to take those faltering steps forward in the under the cover of night to tear down the altar verse 27 then Gideon took ten men of his servants and did as the Lord had spoken to him and because he was too afraid of his father's household and the men of the city to do it by day he did it by night so even though his, uh, he is still struggling with the mental attitude sins and emotional sin of fear he recognizes that and he but he still carries out the task see that tells us something a principle here is that there are times when we are Fearful, but we still trust God. There are times when we have certain emotional responses to what God wants us to do, but we go forward anyway. It's analogous to what happens to the soldier on the battlefield. There is no soldier in any battlefield situation that does not experience some level of fear. But courage is the ability to go forward and perform your job despite how you feel. And that's the same thing we can say about faith. Faith means that we are going to do what God says to do, no matter how we feel, no matter what our experiences might be, and no matter what the consequences might be. When the Word of God is more real to us than our experiences, than our emotions, than our circumstances, that's when we are trusting God. That is the beginning of the faith rest drill. So, in light of this, I want to take a few minutes to review the basic principles of fear and the snowballing effect of fear and its consequences in the spiritual life. First point, in fear, we put our focus on real or imagined dangers, consequences, or calamities. In fear, we are putting our focus on real or imagined dangers, consequences, or calamities. We're focusing on the details of life, their absence or their presence, and not the power, provision, promises, and plan of God. We're putting our focus on the details of life and not God's plan. We're more concerned about things or people or events than we are about the reality of God's plan. So fear is a sign. It is always an an indication of a failure to trust God. Faith means, as I just said, that God's Word is more real to us than our emotions. But when our emotions become more real to us than the Word of God, then we can end up in some sort of emotionalism, and that can affect spiritual life and decision-making on, on, in one direction. And it can also cause us not to trust God and to not do what we're supposed to do on the other hand. Fear means that we have failed to understand the grace of God. Grace of God means that God has done everything for us. His grace is sufficient. It means it's enough. It's more than enough. It's provided everything that we need to lead lead the spiritual life and to do what God has told us to do. So when we're afraid, it means that we don't understand grace. We have to realize it's not us. It's not our power. It's not our ability. It's God. Now, we may have a natural response of fear. That's what happened with Gideon. All of a sudden, he's got to step out on faith. He's never done this before. He's a baby believer. But he's going to trust God despite the fact that he has this fear of his neighbors, of his friends coming out and uh, the mob coming to lynch him because he's torn down their church, as it were. So, he is going to... Uh, uh, do it at night, but the point is, he still does it. He does it despite the fact that he is afraid. So we learn one thing, that fear means that we aren't grace-oriented, lost doctrinal orientation. Part of doctrinal orientation is that we have a mastery of the details of life. We realize that doctrine is more important than the details of life, but when the details of life become more important than doctrine, that's when we become slaves to the details of life. So, the first point is that in fear, we put our focus on real or imagined dangers, consequences, or calamities. The details of life become more important than obedience to God. Point number two, the more things you surrender to fear, the more things you will fear. Once we start succumbing to fear and we begin to get worried about certain things... It, it, it develops like a snowball. It builds as it goes downhill. Today we worry about one thing. Tomorrow we worry about two or three things. The next day it's five or six things until, like the proverb says, we're afraid to go out of the house because there might be a lion in the streets. In the context of that proverb, there really wasn't going to be a lion in the street. It's that this person is so afraid now that they're making up excuses for why they won't do what God will have them to do because it just might happen that something terrible would take place. What happens is we succumb to fear is that we become more and more afraid of other things until we are our lives are controlled and dominated by mental attitude sins. Now, one of the things that I'm skipping ahead here. Point number three. three. The extent to which you surrender to fear, the greater becomes your capacity to fear. So, as we begin to fear, we will fear more things. As we surrender to more fear, then our capacity for fear grows. And as we continue, we are on the process of reversionism. We are reversing in our spiritual growth and we are living our lives on the basis of fear, on the basis of mental attitude sins. And as a result of that, it destroys our capacity for love, for life, for happiness, and for blessing. See, there are no circumstances in life that are going to make us happy. We can't base our happiness on the approval or acceptance of people around us. All of a sudden, people become more important than God all of a sudden circumstances are more important than doctrine. The only way we can have any kind of stability in life, any kind of real happiness in life, is based on our emphasis on God, making doctrine the number one priority, and then everything else works out. It's amazing. Our lives are really systems. There's a whole systemic thing that goes on here and once we succumb to negative volition and we get away from the word and we quit applying doctrine, then a lot of things start happening, happening under the law of volitional responsibility. We make bad decisions and there are negative consequences. But these things tend to have a cumulative effect till all of a sudden one day we wake up and our life's just, just all of a sudden turned to garbage and everything's going wrong. Well, now what we want to do is solve the problem. So what do I do to solve this problem, solve that problem? And we start taking everything apart and not realizing that it is a systemic collapse. And all the problems in our lives are merely the result of an internal failure to make God and doctrine the number one priority in our life. All we have to do to start straightening things out is get back with doctrine. And once we get back with doctrine, making our relationship with God the number one priority, then we start making right decisions. We realize we failed, so we confess our sins, and now instead of operating from a position of weakness on the sin nature, we're now operating from a position of strength on the basis of doctrine and the Holy Spirit. And even though we may now be in prison, even though we may have uh, some terrible disease, even though we may have caused a a loss of every thing we once had in terms of material possessions, we're still alive, God still has a plan for our life, and now we can face and handle those negative circumstances on the basis of doctrine, so suffering now is turned from suffering for cursing to suffering for blessing. That's what happened in David's life after his adultery with Bathsheba, when God lowered the boom on him in terms of divine discipline, and he had a fourfold Uh, divine discipline even though that was not taken away from him and his family life was horrible he had one son uh, rape uh, his half-sister another daughter of David's and then another son killed that one and then Absalom revolted all of these things happened but David had confessed his sin he was back in fellowship so that he still went through the suffering he still went through the consequences of his bad decision but he was able to handle it on the basis of doctrine so it became suffering for blessing and he was able to maintain his stability in the midst of those horrible circumstances despite the fact that um, that they were pretty miserable. And he was miserable. He cried out in grief when Absalom died. But he handled it and maintained his stability in a fantastic way despite the grief because he knew it was God's plan and he was oriented to the plan of God. So the problem is that when we surrender to fear, we develop a greater capacity for fear. Point four, the greater your capacity for fear, the more you increase the power of fear in your life. Now, I want you to realize that fear in the Bible is often the starting point for all of the other mental attitude sins or emotional sins, such as worry, anxiety, bitterness. All of these things are interconnected With fear, So, the greater our capacity for fear, the more we increase the power of fear in your life, and that affects other mental attitude sins. Point number five, the more you increase the power of fear in your life, the greater your mindset as a failure in the spiritual life and shame at the judgment seat of Christ. See, what happens is, now we're dominated by mental attitude sins, we're dominated by fear, we put our focus on the details of life rather than on doctrine, And now we have a mindset that produces failure in the spiritual life. And when we're a failure in the spiritual life, we're going to be a failure at the judgment seat of Christ and experience shame at the judgment seat of Christ. Point number six. Fear is the central emotional sin which first characterized the mental attitude of fallen man. It's the central mental attitude sin that first characterized the mental attitude of fallen man. When Adam and Eve sinned, first Eve sinned, she was deceived, but Adam was the head of the race. He sinned knowingly. When he ate from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the race fell at that point. Then God showed up. God showed up on a daily basis to have and enjoy fellowship with his creatures. When God showed up, what did they do? They hid. Why does it say they hid? Because they were afraid. You see, the core emotional sin of the fallen creature is now fear. It is a fear related to loss of everything. So fear is a central emotional sin, and everything else flows from that. And it's only corrected through understanding grace as an expression of the love of God. Now, here's something that will probably startle some of you. Most of us, when we think of love, we think that its opposite is hatred. That's not how the Bible presents it. In 1 John 4.18, John contrasts fear and love. It's not hatred, it's fear. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. Perfect love is, the, is related to the grace of God. The grace of God is the expression of God's perfect love. And when we understand the love of God, then fear is removed. That's what happened in the garden. When God confronted Adam and Eve in grace, they became aware of His love and His provision of salvation. Fear involves punishment, and the one who fears is not perfected in love. That's the rest of verse 18. But the main point is that perfect love casts out fear. So, the starting point for dealing with fear and the mental attitude sins of, of uh, worry and anxiety is understanding God's grace and His sufficient provision for us. Well, Gideon begins to understand this now in the midst of this entire scenario. And the next morning, after they've torn down the altar, everybody shows up to have their morning sacrifice to Baal and temple's torn down, and so all the men of the city come out, and they're antagonistic. Uh, Verse 28 reads, when the men of the city arose early in the morning, behold, the altar of Baal was torn down, and the Asherah which was beside it was cut down, and the second bull was offered on the altar which had been built. And they said to one another, who did this thing? And when they searched about and inquired, they said, Gideon the son of Joash did this thing. Then the men of the city of Joash say, Bring out your son, that he may die, for he has torn down the altar of Baal. They're ready to lynch him. And indeed, he was cut down. He had cut down the Asherah, which was beside it. But listen to what Joash says in verse 31. But Joash said to all who stood against him, Will you contend for Baal? And here we have the word reeve in the Hebrew, which is a legal term for making a defense. Will you contend for Baal? Is it necessary for you to defend Baal? Why didn't he defend himself? Or will you deliver him? Whoever will plead for him shall be put to death by mourning. And this is Joash's point. If he is a god, let him contend for himself because someone has torn down his altar. Now, this is the point. This is extremely confusing in the way it's translated in in the English and I'm just beginning to understand what's going on here. The writer's extremely subtle, and the Hebrew is very difficult. Much of Judges is written in a very ancient form of Hebrew, by the way, and so it's, it's a little difficult to handle at times. He's, his basic contention is, look, Baal is going to contend for himself. You don't need to get involved. He's using that to save his son's life. And then verse 32, it's almost parenthetical. Therefore, on that day, he named him Jerubbaal. That is to say, let Baal contend against him, because he had torn down his altar. Now it sounds like this is a positive thing, that he's naming his son Jeroboam, which means that uh, that he contended against Baal. But in the form of the word in the Hebrew, the root is the word. Reve in Hebrew. It's what's called a hollow verb. It looks like this in Hebrew: R, and this is an I, and this is a uh, pronounced like a B. It's a soft B. Now it's called a hollow verb because it has this this um, vowel in the vowel point in the middle, and this turns to a U. So this is the RUB in the middle of uh, Jeroboam, and it's given a an I, a J or Y at the beginning as an imperfect. But it is not... See, the way it's translated in English, let Baal contend, is uh, would take that as what's called a justive form. But there is no example of a justive form of this verb anywhere in Hebrew literature. So that presents a problem. Also, the verb is to contend... And the subject of the verb in the noun, in the name phrase is Baal. And um, it, it's kind of a uh, uh, sarcastic statement, almost a, 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 has a double meaning here. And what Joash is saying is that Baal is going to contend for himself. Now, the interesting thing is, I've always been fascinated by, by the use of biblical names and how they are used to communicate certain things. Everywhere else in the Bible, except for Judges and the reference to Gideon in Hebrews 11, Gideon is referred to by the name Jerubbaal. But when you get into uh, other passages, sometimes the Baal is changed to Besheth, where it's Jerubesheth. Jerubbesheth means the sh- let shame contend. We have other examples of names like, of compound names with Baal, like Ishbaal is changed to Ishbosheth in Second Samuel two eight. Merib-ba-al is changed to uh, Mephibosheth in Second Samuel eleven twenty one. All of that seems to suggest that Jerubaal is Gideon's real name. He wasn't that, that he wasn't named Gideon. Gideon means to hew down or to cut down. That Gideon was his second name, but the name that his father had given him from birth was Jerobaal. And that here he earned, his his father is referring to that. uh, And this is all an ironic statement that's saying, just let the kid live, but all will contend for himself and it'll all work itself out. And and this is is a real subtle point, the reason the writer brings this in. This is why it's so fun to get into the text sometimes. See, Gideon is going to lead the nation right back into idolatry when it's all over with. And that's what, and this is foreshadowed by this episode his father recognizes look you know no matter what happens he's going to lead. this is what's going to happen eventually and so there's this foreshadowing of what happens under gideon gideon has this great victory in the next chapter but when it's all over with gideon is going to lead the nation back into idolatry and you you know to get through all of this you just have to know the hebrew when everything is said and done after he has the victory over the midianites the people want to make him king and Gideon says, no, 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 I'm not going to be king. And I think that at first he really is truly humble. I'm not going to be king. But there's also this element there, that's, that's this subtle element, that, that he also wants to be king. But he knows he shouldn't, so he's torn. Well, we know what happens, who eventually wins, because when he has a son, he names his son Abimelech. And Abimelech is the story of Judges 9. And Abimelech in the Hebrew means, is a compound word, Avi, Melech, my father is king. So there's all these subtleties going on in the text showing us that Gideon is, is not this great spiritual hero, but he is just a baby believer just stumbling along, but God still delivers the nation despite their failures, despite their inabilities, despite their compromise. Why? Because God is a God of grace, and grace is not dependent on who we are or what we do, but it's dependent on who God is and His plan. And we see this in the next episode, starting in verse uh, um, 34 down to the end of the chapter. We have the famous episode where Gideon, once again, wants to challenge um, if this is really God's will or not. And the Midianites come in, look at the map here. They're going to cross here. Here's Mount Gilboa here, Hill of Morah up here. And then this is, over, over here is Mount Carmel. In between here is the great Valley of Jezreel, which we usually refer to as the Valley of Armageddon. Now, that gives you an orientation. The Midianites are going to come across this way and invade. And this is what the Valley of Jezreel looks like. It's an enormous valley, wide open. And it, it covers fr- from the Jordan almost all the way across the Mediterranean so it's a vast area and it just seems like there's no defense and the Midianites and Amalekites just do whatever they want to so we're told that the Spirit of the Lord then in verse 34 comes upon Gideon and he blew a trumpet and all the troops gathered together but then verse 36 we see this waffling back and forth back and forth between Gideon one sense the Holy Spirit comes on him and he Uh, all the troops gather, even though they're hostile to him, they respond. And I think the reason they respond is because it is the Holy Spirit calling everybody together. And in verse 36, he says to God, If you will deliver Israel through me as you have spoken, behold, I will put out a fleece. Now, from 37 to 40, we have the famous fleece episode. First, he puts the fleece out and he says, If this is really what you want me to do, if there's dew on the fleece only and the rest of the ground's dry, then I'll know. Well, he already knows. We saw that back in verse 16 and seven. He knows what God wants to do. He's trying to avoid responsibility. He's trying to make something so hard that nothing will happen because he really doesn't trust God. But the next morning he gets up and there's so much dew on the fleece that when he squeezes it out, there's a whole bowl of water there. A gallon of water comes out of the fleece. But that's not enough. He wants to test God again. And he tests God again. And he says, okay, this time if it's really what you want me to do, make the fleece dry and everything else wet. And the next morning the, the, the fleece is wet. I mean, or is dry and everything else is wet, so Gideon just can't avoid it anymore. But his whole episode here of challenging God to this sort of uh, sort of test is indicative of what the pagans did in Baal worship. In fact, there's a Ugaritic uh, text that I have up on the overhead. It reads, "If Baal the Almighty is alive, this is this is the kind of um, of um, a bargain with God, trying to get God to." Um, uh, uh, prove himself. If Baal the Almighty is alive, if His Highness the Lord of the earth exists, in a dream of the benevolent, El the good-hearted, in a vision of the progenitor of creation... The skies will rain oil, the wadis will run with honey. In other words, this guy's praying, Baal, if you're alive, you'll make the uh, skies rain oil and the wadis run with honey. And then I will know that Baal is the Almighty. See, it's this kind of thing. So, so even in this whole fleece episode, Gideon isn't trying to find out God's will for his life. He already knows it. He's trying to confirm it and his whole approach is pagan. He approaches God on the basis of pagan methodology. But we see that God is gracious. God is more concerned with delivering Israel than he is with uh, all the little peccadilloes and problems in Gideon's theology. And God in grace always meets us where we are and solves our problems. And that's what we're going to see next time is the tremendous way God solves the problem in Israel, making it clear that it's God's solution and not our solution that turns the tide with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you that we have your word to come to, that your word tells us that you have provided the solution for every problem we can face in life, and that your word, your grace, is more than abundant. We're reminded of Paul's statement that your grace is sufficient for us, that your strength is made perfect in our weakness. This is ultimately seen at the cross. For we could do nothing to save ourselves or to make ourselves savable, but you have done it all by sending your son Jesus Christ down the cross for our sins. We pray if there's anyone here this morning who is unsure of their salvation, uncertain of their eternal destiny, that right now they will make that sure and certain. Right now you have the opportunity to trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior. That's all that is necessary. You don't need to make a bargain with God. You don't need to enter into some sort of uh, attempt at moral reformation. You don't need to join a church or engage in any other religious activity or ritual. All you need to do is believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins, was buried and rose again on the third day, and you will have eternal life. Father, we pray for the rest of us that we would be challenged by what we have learned today, encouraged by the fact that you meet us where we are, that we, if we are still alive, you have a plan for our lives, and that your grace is sufficient. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.